episode of Relative Pitch following an amazing Super Bowl. You know, it was a good Super Bowl. Great, great football a little bit. You know, I wanted the Bengals to win because Joe Burrow, LSU. But let's talk about the real story. The amazing halftime show that it gave something that any other halftime show didn't give. And little shady under T, that kind of show was supposed to take place in Atlanta when the Super Bowl was in Atlanta. Right. Now, remind us, who performed in Atlanta? Um, I believe it was... It was Maroon 5, wasn't it? Maroon 5. Yeah, because that was when Colin Kaepernick started taking the knee that got, that started the whole thing and the original performance pulled out. Oh, wow. I totally forgot about I Look, y'all, I didn't know if the Los Angeles mm, or uh, the St. Louis Raptors, St. Louis Raptors. I don't know. I don't know football. Okay, that's not what I don't. I personally, I didn't even tune in. I watched the halftime show okay. on YouTube because I'm sorry, just football. That's that's not just me. Okay, but I will have to say, I will have to say that I um I very much enjoyed this halftime show. I was thoroughly, thoroughly um, always involved. Um, Love the sets. The vocals, the raps, everything. It was good. First of all, let's just talk about all of those people on there. They are like from the 90s, early 2000s. And they are still selling it out, still doing it. And they are representing a culture where people usually count out, which is rap. First of all, let me just put some respect on rappers' names. Rappers are usually and have been since the conception Inception, conception, inception <laughs> of rap, of rap. They are usually the smartest musicians. Why? They usually write their own lyrics. They use produce their own stuff. So therefore, they are in control of what they produce. While other artists usually have writers and producers and thousands, and they don't own their stuff. They don't own it. Rappers was one of the first artists um, to do that. So let's put some respect on on rappers because right now, I, a lot of people as a music teacher asking, what did you think about the Super Bowl? Hmm. I thought it was great. This is the music right. that I, that I um, grew up on. Oh, well, that's not the music I grew up on. I didn't really know what they were saying. And, and y'all didn't... Well, maybe... Find the song. Look up the lyrics. They go. You can read them. You can see how many words they bleeped out for no reason. Um, I will also say, just for people who may have not have watched it, the performers were Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar, and also Fifty Cent was also up in there too, right? Fifty Cent. Fifty Cent. Hey, he he hung on the rafters. He said, "I'm here. I'm back." I know. I um, love his little entity that you know. Um, but can we just talk about the reason, like? First of all, Dr. Dre, L.A. West, like West Coast. Okay. And Snoop starting it, that was it. Especially if you watch the Super Bowl, you saw the L.A. handprint on his hand. Smackdown, he started to rise up with his soundboard, which he's famous for because he's produced so many people. He's raised so many people in this industry. And then you cut straight to the Compton, like um, Compton and Inglewood like stuff with him and Snoop Dogg. And once that song kicked off, Da, 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 da. I jumped out of my I jumped off of my sofa. I said, it's here. We're here. Bring it. Talk about the culture. First of all, the dancers out there crip walking. Crip walking. <laughs> crip walking. Like, Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg was doing yeah, like, it. Yo, for the culture. And yes, you talking about uh, gangs. Whatever. Shut up. Shut up. Like you, this is for the culture. And this LA West Coast, that is what it is. Okay. LA West Coast. You know, there was a person that I thought would be there, but this is going into my argument. How people is like, this is political. Yada, yada. If they wanted to be political, you know who they would have brought out? Ice Cube, NWA. Like, baby. What up? What <laughs> if they really wanted to be political, well, Anthony, we can't be political anymore because they bleeped out Popo. 
Mm. How? Why is popo a word to be bleeped out? Just really? Connotation around the word police apparently is what they were saying. Mm. Mm-hmm. They should have brought Ice Cube out. But did you also let's pay our respects. R.P. Tupac when uh, California. California dreaming. Yes, I mean again, like that was West Coast, and honestly, when we're talking about West Coast, I that's why I was kind of confused when I saw Fifty Cent and Mary J. Blige. Which, mind you, I love Fifty, love me some Mary, love Auntie Mary. Right, come on, Mary, be stepping, okay? You know she but had all them thigh high boots, right? And Epic. that was very weird because they are East Coast. Like Mary J. Blige was, you know, with Diddy and and Biggie, East Coast. So it was like. Mm. But I, what I do, and it might be the symbolism, is that, you know, back in the 90s, East Coast versus West Coast, it got real bad. Mm, real bad. bad. So it might have been mending the fences of, like, we as a rap community have come together because we have other people trying to trying to diminish our, our worth. We are coming together. And so I really loved seeing that as a whole. Um, but I'm just saying it, it was it was good. And when No More Drama, let me just tell y'all, No More Drama by Mary J. Blige was my anthem since I was like three. Okay. No more drama. Like I was in it. I was in it. And then she fell out, loved it. Also, let's give let's give our kudos to uh Mr. Kendrick Lamar. Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize. There it is. That was the first time a Pulitzer Prize winning artist, composer, whatever, performed in the Super Bowl since the 80s, 90s? What was the last one? I don't know. I thought I saw some. I don't know any others. I'll look up while y'all keep talking. I don't know any others, but all I do know is that I thought the lineup lineup was great. Kendrick Lamar being a Pulitzer Prize winner. Dr. Dre being a billionaire. I mean, first of all, can we talk about Beats by Dre? Beats by Dre. That he sold to Apple for over a billion. Like, come on. Snoop Dogg. I think they said like all of them in total have 46 Grammys, 21 Billboard number one yep. uh, albums. Yep. Like, come on. Talk about a cast that. It's established. They're all established. Um, I mean, you can go on any of them, but look, overall, it was for the culture. It was for the culture. It was, and it was one of the most historically recognized Super Bowl halftime shows that we have ever gotten, may ever get, depending on how people (laughs) react to this one, because there are already people having co- like comments like you were saying about I don't know if I really liked it this year. I was confused. Well guess what? We didn't say nothing when um Coldplay was up there. Right. We didn't say nothing when Shakira and Jayla was up there. Now that one cut. Ooh. Cut. So why are we saying this now? And like you you were you were making this a statement like you're you're oh, you are yes, making yes. this to be something more than what it is because it is something that you don't prefer exactly it's not centered on things that um they like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i just personally feel like if you didn't like it guess what turn the tv turn it or learn about something or or like learn that Kendrick Lamar set, he really came out here and he was given what it was supposed to give. I agree. I think they, I, I personally, I think every single performer gave what they needed to give. Um, I, I from Dr. Dre to Snoop Dogg. Um, also, uh, 50 Cent, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick, um, Eminem. If you didn't see Anderson Peck, playing the um drums yeah the drums during eminem and so i let's speak on this eminem kneeling thing let's talk about that because that was a big thing um even the former mayor of new york rudy giuliani had something to say about it like he's not in hot water with his best friend donald b whatever um mr donald so I don't know why he's speaking like he's not going to go to prison anyway, but uh, he's speaking on that. Like, so the kneeling. 
this is so interesting to me when because people the reason why people were so up in arms about Colin Kaepernick was the fact that he was kneeling during the national anthem, correct? Right. Was correct. Eminem kneeling during the national anthem? No. That that part when I cause remember I didn't see it during the time, but I saw tweets and it was like, uh, he's kneeling, yada yada yada. And I was like, I thought he was doing a halftime with when was he kneeling during the national anthem? Like I, exactly. I thought Miss Whisper singer herself, Janae Aiko. And this also was a thing that a lot of people was like, was that by happen chance or was that planned? It was planned. It was planned. In the moment, no one knew. Exactly. Right. I, if it was, if it was me, he got all that money stuff. I would have played a little track of the national anthem right then. Throw it in the little piano and then leave right back out. The NFL commissioner, he said it was playing. Like they they saw it there. And that's what Rudy Giuliani, he was talking about like um, the NFL has went against uh, police and even said the radical, uh, I think he said radical cop killing Black Lives Matter movement. That's what they see it as. It's what they see it as. They see everything that happens as political now. You can you can take a knee for during whatever song or in protest of whatever, and it's automatic. Like it's it's already said what you are doing, no matter what, right? It doesn't even matter if you're disrespecting the flag or disrespecting the anthem. Now it's become this whole thing. So I, you know, he didn't have to do it, right? Eminem didn't have to do it. But the biggest, the big thing that people are still like not letting go, they're like, listen though, wh- wh- run Colin Kaepernick his money, run him his coin, run him his what he deserves because the amount of his name has been dragged through these streets, through the mud for all, everything that people are trying to do now. So I'm like, I listen, me and the NFL, first of all, I don't care about, I don't care, not one bit. It could go away and I wouldn't give one crap about it. But the fact, especially that they did that, to him and then have the nerve to have all these amazing halftime players and then Eminem doing all this stuff. I'm like, you know what? Run me my reparations. Run him his reparations. That's what I have to say about it. But, and it's funny because the NFL evidently is not um, seen in good likes on both sides. I mean, Rudy Giuliani is talking about, you know, the NFL is just purporting, you know, Black Lives Matter movement. But then on this side is like, well, first of all, they ain't. They over here still not even speaking to Colin Kaepernick. So what are you talking about? So, you know, I see that they're they're trying to tread the the fence lightly because they don't want to lose fans because they lose fans. That means losing money. Um, But I mean, you know, Eminem, did what he did and that was that i mean i know some lgbtq people might wonder why eminem was there but you know what let me just say this let me just say this if you're gonna go for him you better go for all of them because they all have done something in the past you got to remember rap has I, i love me some rap but rap has not always been kind to lgbtq especially black lgbtq or honestly women's rights yep so let's not let we are not glorifying um or over all of that we understand that but for the culture that we are living in today that was a great representation of the culture i mean literally if you want a political statement from this uh this super bowl the the quote is we gonna be all right Pulitzer Prize winning Kendrick Lamar. He's going to be all right. And all that's right. Yep, he was the first Pulitzer Prize winner. It just, there was a lot of posts that said probably. Oh, he was. Oh. So, um, no. So, the let, let's just, let's let Kendrick actually take us over to our interview with our amazing guest, Dr. Ana Alonzo Minuti. Um, get ready for this, y'all. This, this one's good. See y'all over there. All's my life I has to fight. Uh, all's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah. Nazareth, I'm on one, you on one. God got us, we gon' be all right. Hope we gon' be all right. Uh, we gon' be all right. Hope we gon' be all 
Today we are joined by one of my favorite professors in the world. I'm not just saying that because she gave me an A. <laughs> Dr. Ana Alonza Minuti, the Associate Professor of Musicology and Ethnomusicology at the University of New Mexico. It's so great having you here today, Dr. Minuti. Thank you. And um, for everyone, so I took a, a class that was rooted in uh, feminism and music um, within um, the University of New Mexico. And I took it with Dr. Minuti. And this class was so interesting to me because of all the social aspects we got to talk about in in, um, in with music, if that makes sense, or in parallel to music and how music and like society can reflect each other. And that's basically everything we talk about here on Relative Pitch. So this just made so much sense. But Dr. Minuti also brings a very... Um, interesting perspective that none of us really have of being like an international like educator and also like researcher. And Dr. Minuti, you're not even with us this year at University of New Mexico. Where are you? What are you up to? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so proud of, of the work that you have been doing because this is so relevant and so needed. So Anthony and Michael and Lauren, thank you for doing this. So I just wanted to start with that. <laughs> Um, and yes, I am in sabbatical. Um, so for people who don't know how sabbaticals work, like um, most universities, not all, but most universities in the U.S. have this system that um, professors, full-time professors get some time off after a period of full-time work. Like for instance, after six full years of work, you get um, a semester. Um, of paid sabbatical. Usually that is so that faculty can focus on the research fully and not so much on teaching, even though I still do mentoring and advising um, while I'm on sabbatical. So I took the full year and um, I am right now in Mexico in a small city called Atlisco, which is nearby the city of Puebla, which is kind of like two and a half hours away from Mexico City, the capital. And this is my parents' house currently. And that's my, the piano that I started learning piano. Um, and I, start, I started my music studies, even though this is not the house that I started playing piano. But this is where my parents live now. I'm visiting them. But I've spent time also in other uh, places, other countries and other cities. So my plan was to spend my entire year outside of the U.S., um, reconnecting with uh, my Spanish background, my Spanish language, uh, which is my first language, and my family and my research. Yeah, no, that's for, for me, that's so amazing to like have professors who are still currently, you can see the work that they're doing out in the field, because for me, that's like even more inspiring, I think, than even having you in the classroom is getting to see, or maybe it's both. Maybe it's like having you as a professor and then seeing you out in the field continuously doing research and doing all the things that you're like taught like teaching in your curriculum um and that's something that i mean i'm seeing for them a lot i think especially during covid um i think a lot of teachers and professors are utilizing that time to kind of like you said like get back in touch with maybe their their roots of where they were raised and what got them into um their fields and so that's really interesting and speaking of covid like because you have been you know, away from the U.S. for a while now during sabbatical. How has the situation with COVID like been where you are compared to what's happening over here? Yeah, um, you know, COVID obviously changed globally the way we live, right? Um, but yeah, for me, it has been super interesting to to really see the impact of COVID um, in communities and countries outside of the U.S. Uh, and not necessarily because I already kind of like knew what the impact in the U.S. has been, because actually New Mexico has been very particular in the way that they have handled as a state COVID, which in my view has been actually very efficient. Um, like, I don't know, um, Lauren, if you got, when you got your vaccines, but like I got my first vaccine as early as like, was early March 2020. Yes. So, um, and that was remarkably like in the early side of the history of, you know, availability of vaccines elsewhere. So um, we were, I was very lucky. We were very lucky, right? But because we, we had that privilege, right? Because it is a privilege. 
we had that privilege of having access, free access to vaccines and top-notch vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, I, if, if personally, I took that as also like a huge responsibility, mm-hmm. right? So for instance, like I was the kind of person who never left my house for like a year and a half, basically. And I was very careful in how I interacted with other people, where I interacted with other people. And I was thinking about, for instance, my, my parents uh, in Mexico. And I was thinking um, how they didn't have uh, access to vaccines for a lot of 2020, I believe. And, um, and into 2021, I think. So, so like that gave me like a sense of, okay, you know, like, because I know that in other parts of the world, this is not even possible. Like I'm going to do my best to, to be healthy and to keep the ones around me healthy. So um, that mindset kind of like um, allowed me to be more aware, more aware of the asymmetries of the, of COVID life globally, right? Like we get so immersed in what the U S politics are about masks and about masks and vaccines. And if you get the, if you want to get the vaccine or what, what, you know, all the, all that stuff that is always in the news, in the U S news that we kind of like, um, we need to take a step back and actually even see like how's the world like even dealing with these issues because frankly in our fields it's not only you know U.S. born people that we're working with and that we're in communication and collaborating with like especially COVID brought up like the the possibilities of collaborating with the world like of having meetings and colloquia and even concerts like virtual concerts with people from all over the world but we can't we can't assume that our experience in the u.s living with covid is the same as experience of someone living for instance i don't know in costa rica or in puerto rico or in argentina or in cuba or even in europe or in asia right or in africa um we just can't right so so yeah i mean bringing back to to your question um i've spent time in the the well, I, I came to Mexico first and then I spent time in Costa Rica and I did like a one month residency there. And it's it's interesting because even before traveling, you know, guys, how like we got um, I as I said, I, w- I was so responsible with the COVID thing that I didn't want to take a plane, not only for my own sake, but again, like for the sake of others. So for, for a long time, I was like thinking, I don't know, like ethically, if I should go to Costa Rica, because again, I'm going with my vaccine you know, and I'm going with everything. But like, so I was talking with, with my collaborators in Costa Rica and I was saying, you know, how things are there, like in terms of COVID, blah, blah, blah. And then they were like, you know what? Life goes on. That's all we can do. Like this is, I mean, we have other um, sicknesses to worry about, you know, access to education to, sorry, to uh, access to health has always been an issue. So like, it's, all, it's another reality, right? So COVID is just one more thing and work doesn't stop because finances, yeah. you know, I mean, money is, I mean, people need to have, you know, means to bring food to their to their yeah. homes, right? So so that, um, yeah, it was interesting. It was very interesting to me to, to see how um, they were welcoming me because they, they assumed that, okay, that I was going to get plugged in and do my thing along with everybody else. And of course, we were super careful wearing masks, like, you know, in every place, like they had like, like washing hands stations, like even outside of the news of the School of Music, they had like several washing hand stations and hand sanitizers and things like that. And anyways, so all this to say that that gave me a sense of like, yeah, musicians, they, they were still doing their thing. Um, and because, you know, performing arts have suffered so much um, in COVID, but in, again, like you do what you have to do and you find ways to do it, being responsible, of course, but like doing the thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and uh, with that, because um, one thing that you said earlier about reconnecting with your culture and, and going back, 
Um, can you explain to like the importance of that? Because we, we've we talked about on here, um, like for our culture it is so great when I hear like music that represents the culture that, you know, I grew up in. Um, and so, but you actually have the opportunity to go back to um, where you grew up and just getting back there. So how important is that? And what are some things um, that you have like learned from this experience? Yeah, that's, that's a very nice question because obviously people like to talk about their upbringing or at least I do because I had a happy upbringing. Yeah. <laughs> that's another privilege, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to always be aware of our privileges. Um, and I did have a happy childhood and, um, and things were provided for me as a child. Basic needs, including, you know, a stable family, which again is a privilege and including food and a roof, right? under my head so i don't take those for granted and i consider myself very privileged but um but yeah you know as, as someone who who had to leave their home country in mexico in order to pursue the the academic degree that i wanted that at that point in time was not available nowhere in my country um i took that decision but that didn't imply like disconnecting right from where i am from 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 uh, my family, from my roots, um, and in fact, uh, I don't know, Lauren, if I ever said this in class, but maybe I didn't. But it's funny because when I came to the U.S. to to pursue a PhD, frankly, I never thought that I would stay and be a professor in the U.S. Uh, yeah, I did mention. Okay, so. Um, and I, and I say this because sometimes the assumption as international scholars, especially as international scholars of color, the assumption is that, you know, we come to the U.S. and we want the, the full, quote unquote, American dream and that we make it if we actually get a tenure track position in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> um, but frankly, that was not my objective. That was not my goal. In fact, I went to the US to get my, my PhD in musicology and my, my thoughts were to go back home. I knew that I wanted to be a university professor and I knew, I, I, I knew that that was going to be kind of like my, my vocation, like my life vocation, but I didn't necessarily, um, well, I didn't necessarily want to be in the US. I, wanted to go back to Mexico. But the reality, again, talking about realities, the reality was that when I graduated from my PhD and I started to kind of like see what job opportunities were for me in Mexico, I didn't find any. Uh, And it was a matter of practicalities, right? Like, okay, I have a job offer at the University of North Texas in Denton, or I go to Mexico with nothing and start looking for something with nothing. So, you know, it's basically a matter of you know taking the decision that made sense at, the, at that point and then one thing led to another and i was at unt and then now i am at unm but anyways um all this to say is that because i was at unt for some years and then i i, I came to unm and i i had been uh, in unm for some years i didn't get to have this sabbatical um until basically 13 years of full-time teaching which is almost double the time, as I was telling you, as all the professors, usually six years and then your sabbatical. So I really, really, really needed some time um, to connect again with my country, but not only with my country, but like with my language. Because um, for international scholars and students whose first language is not English, it's very tiring to think and perform and teach and write in a language that still like is not the first language right like i learned english basically as an adult so um it is tiring so so i really wanted to go back because guys i also started to see how i was kind of like losing my spanish so i was saying things that didn't even make sense So I needed to basically be back and reconnect and start thinking and dreaming and writing and, and like communicating in Spanish. Um, so therefore, here I am. And also that has given me mental space, frankly, because I don't have to like simultaneously translate all the time. 
So that frees the space and it actually eases the, the stress, uh, which, you know, as, as I also covered in classroom for me, and I know that this is a topic that you guys have covered in, in your podcast, how rest is so important for us and for people of color is not just important, but it's vital. It's a radical act, like taking time is a radical act and it, it is, you know, um, it's survival. Yeah, so um, the, what you just said, and first of all, it speaks a lot because um, I learned this in college really was the importance of just going back to family or, or things because I, as I learned being in college and being away from family, it was like, I've now I've, I've like forgot the, the isms that, you know, was culturally is what we did um, as I grew up in family. So then I would take a weekend to go back with my parents and we're from South Georgia. So like, you know, the country isms come back in and everything. And, and it really is like putting your mental state at rest and you're back well. So when you go back off, like you're ready for it. And so what you just said spoke uh, volumes. So thank you so much for saying that. This is really interesting because a lot of what you just talked about, I feel like I hear in conversations when people talk about code switching um, and like what the roots of code switching are. And like, so Michael's face just went home. No. So like, Michael, it's like whatever I would, you would call home. Right. And you would talk to Nana Papa and your accent would get thick as I don't even know what, like it would just become a thing because you were talking to your family and you knew how they talked and so you and i get it i do the same thing i come i go home and i come back and i i said <laughs> i sound like i'm from south carolina again like y'all yes, yes. fun of me for it <laughs> but it's the ditty version you ain't the full country version whatever right. Right. It's like south carolina light <laughs> not diet south carolina oh my right. God. it is so like that was such an interesting conversation because not only just talking about accents but also just language in general and like i didn't even think about that of how difficult that transition must have been to going from speaking writing just being in a spanish culture to now being just fully in the u.s and like none of us i'm sorry like our education system does not set us up to actually speak other languages we it's like a check like mark on a box in education for us which is so unfortunate um and so i wanted to know like a little bit more talking about so code switching when it comes to code switching a lot of the time when i talk about it it's like we all have this idea that we have to sound a certain way or we're like kind of appealing to a certain idea of what a educated or someone who's in academia is supposed to sound like and this kind of goes into co like colonialism right and like this idea of what we're trying to seem like and who we're trying to compare ourselves to and that's what we talked a lot about that in class in your class and i love that because it was so eye-opening because it's not even something you may even notice you're doing until someone points it out in a way, right? But then you talked about, especially when you were, you were mentioning how you stayed over here, not because you really wanted to, but it was because you you had to, right, for your career and for what you wanted to do. And so there's a lot I encapsulated in that, but can you speak on the idea of colonialism and how it affects, especially your field of uh, music? Yeah, of course. And and I really like that you guys um, tackle these these topics that are frankly like so difficult even to to address. Um, and address outside of the classroom, right? Because I mean, this is not supposed to be like an academic podcast. This is like supposed to be like an, a, you know, a daily life, kind of like what we talk with the friends and you know what we're concerned about that affects our lives so yes i mean definitely um yeah so so language right language in in, uh, in relation to colonialism right and how even we don't even think how how we treat language uh, we're still operating within this colonial mindset so uh, i'll speak about that and i'll speak from my experience right because it's not a lecture on colonialism or decolonialism but um, but yeah, I mean, for instance, um, one thing that I'm sure that you talk about here is racism, right? Um, and how, you know, usually everybody will say that they don't want to be racist, right? And everybody will say that they want to be colorblind, but I'm sure that you have unpacked, you know, the racist, you know, under, uh, messaging the colorblindness, right? But, um, 
Another thing is how this, you know, there's layers of discrimination um, that are placed upon like how we hear each other speaking, right? Like, like these accents, ways of like vocabulary. I mean, if, if even in, in let, let's say English native speakers, right? Like how you treat differently certain people just because of how they talk, what language they they use, what kind of like um, slangs or what kind of accent, right? Well, even more so when you start listening to non-English native speakers, immediately I can see like when I came to the U.S., like I could see how people's faces change. Like, okay, they see you and you look a certain way. And of course, there's all sorts of uh, filters happening, right? Color and race and ethnicity. And they, there's all sorts of assumption uh, put on, on you and how you look. But another thing is how of discrimination, right? So for instance, like, uh, you know, talking about intersectionality, right? That is a, a concept that I don't know if you guys have talked about, but it can really cringe out. Uh, and anyways, race, class, gender, etc. how they intersect. Um, but yeah, like for instance, for professors um, in academia or, in, or not even professors in academia, but even like professional musicians, right? Um, uh, women of color. Uh, you know, we have the, the gender um, bias there, we have the race bias there. But then the other thing is, is when your accent um, communicates that you're not from there, you're not from, let's say, the US, you know, as, as, uh, English speaking land, then the assumption is that you don't even know what you're talking about. That, you know, that why to listen to you you know and this is reflected in how for instance i can tell you guys that this this has been reflected in things that you might not even think about but like student evaluations like i don't know how many times i have gotten this comment from students saying we can't understand her or um yeah or like for instance um her instructions are not clear um and of course they don't say because English is not her first language, but it is totally implied. Um, now, it is true, of course, it is true that, and Lauren, you might remember this, it is true that sometimes, you know, because I'm constantly translating, I don't use grammar correctly 100% of the time, but I try to provide an atmosphere of, okay, you guys, ask me if, if I'm not being clear, please ask me, and I will repeat I have my PowerPoint with some things written always so that if I am not understood, there is a PowerPoint there that <laughs> might clarify things. So anyways, but, but that, that also goes into like, for instance, like faculty peer evaluations. Like I've also gotten comments um, when let's say supervisors come and observe my classes and I'm giving lectures on, let's say like 14th century polyphony and isorhythmic motets and I'm giving these like elaborate lecture and this is actually a true story and then the lecture ends and the comment that I get from a supervisor is oh I can't believe how you people can lecture in English <laughs> and I have just spent like an entire hour elaborating you know my knowledge on in 14th century polyphony and all the comments i i have are okay your english is not that bad you know um wow, wow. <laughs> so anyways all this to say that i do think that one of the many strategies of decolonizing education decolonizing music studies decolonizing uh, the self is again to be aware of different ways of communicating right and to have the openness and the patience to listen to truly listen we're musicians we have trained ears but sometimes we're the worst at listening to people and again this act of listening actually is not just a matter of the ear it's a matter of the body like we listen with our bodies with our entire bodies so that's how we need to get attuned with each other, not only in a communicating, like verbal communication level, but in a, in a, in a, in a physical level, like how we 
I use our body language. What can we infer from each other's body languages? Um, how do we feel about personal space and about proximity? You, you don't have to be like one centimeter from the other person to feel close to that person, right? But there's an attitude, right? So all those things, of course, are part of what I think is that the colonizing uh, process that we should be like working towards, right? So um, it all starts also with this dichotomy of mind and body, right? Like, and the hierarchy that we place on mind um, upon body and soul and spirit, right? And this time has given me also the chance to kind of like balance them out better, right? Um, and to have a, a, a better sense of how to feed my soul, feel, feed my, my spirit, in this case, for instance, feed my, my um, Spanish uh, uh, speaking and thinking and um, over the, the English, no? and, and not have that hierarchy because it's so hierarchical in US acad academia. Like, like for instance, um, even students, like you said, you know, students, um, sometimes they're, they're not uh, expected to, to, to learn other languages. And therefore, students are very reluctant to read sources um, that are not in English, right? Um, but, I mean, we should get over it. We don't need to kind of like learn another language to actually kind of like browse through texts and try to figure it out and have like your, your phone right there and a, a dictionary and like find the keywords and, you know, just figure out what's the text about. I... Fun fact, I just did that with my program notes. That I'm playing a piece by Santiago Baez, and he's not a well-known composer uh, for the trumpet, but there's some works that never knew he had for brass quintet, trumpet, all these brass instruments. And the only document I could find about the piece I'm playing was in Spanish. And I, I, all I can tell you from Spanish is how to say the alphabet with the YouTube clip. That's all I remember learning in my two semesters in high school. That's it. It wasn't, yeah, couldn't speak it. I bet this alphabet sounds awful. It's like some weird Southern way of uh, speaking Spanish. But yeah, I sat there for hours and I was like, what? What does this word mean? Okay. <laughs> what is this? Object? Ooh, it was, but like, you learn more. And when you and you appreciate what you learn, if you have to sit through, it's like people like, oh, if you don't know every Mahler term, then why do you have any business playing Mahler? Well, if you play, I'm playing a Toro Takamitsu piece. He's Japanese. The source I found for him was in Japanese. If I if I could not, and I I had to learn like word by word how to read it. So why are we expected to learn like? Mahler stuff and all this German and all this European things, but we won't take the time to create real program notes if it's not in our language or in a language that we were classically trained to learn. Mm. So, hashtag tear it down. <laughs> so, I think one of the, the last things that I, I would like to ask is actually if you could give us some definitions. So a lot of these, a lot of people are, um, I would say in the past couple of years have been hearing all of these different theories. Um, and so from a professor, what would be your definition of queer theory, critical race theory, um, so that our audience really get to know what these are and, and a caveat to that. Um, a lot of people, whenever they hear these terms, they automatically go into a defense, like they're automatically ready to fight about critical race theory should not be taught in schools, but they don't even know what it actually means. So if you could give us the definition of queer theory, critical race theory. Or even how you, how you in your mind define that or how you teach like critical race or uh, queer theories. Yeah, and again, I I totally hear you because I mean these these terms. I mean, yes, in a way. I mean, this is super interesting because this also makes us aware that every single word that we speak has a history, right? And every term, every concept, every ideology has a history. Right? But but these terms are useful, right? Like or can be useful, have the potential to be useful. And how we use them is what matters, right? Like 
even the term that I was speaking before, decoloniality, like it has been so used and, and overly used and misused. And the same with the, the concept of race or queer, queerness, they have been misused as well. So yeah, so critical race theory, I mean, yes, and these theories, I mean, some, some scientists might tell you, oh, no, 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 those are no theories because theories are in the hard sciences, right? But like, we're talking about humanities, right? We're talking about the, the humanities field. And, you know, in humanities, we build theories that allow us to explain things, right? So critical race theory, of course, you know, I mean, the term itself, you know, I think that goes back to, I believe, the 70s. And it has to do with the work of, of Kimberly Crenshaw and others, I think, Delgado, and I don't remember who else, right? But like, like it started in a particular context, I mean, a particular discipline, I think it was law, I mean, the legal field. But then, you know, it expanded to other fields, right? Because that's what theories do. I mean, if, if they are useful, then they start being applied by other fields. So, um, so in the case of you know, critical race theory in education, right, or in music, I mean, it's a way of understanding, first of all, that the concept of race is socially based, it's a social construct that is not something kind of like that is tied to the biology and to the way we are and to the way things are, you know, um, and that, you know, because it's been socially constructed, that there are, again, hierarchies that are structural, that there are um, power structures that operate in the basis of what race you are perceived to, to have, actually. Or, um, and you know, in the US, for instance, it talks about, again, the, his the long, long history of colonialism, which is tied to racism, which is tied to slavery, which is tied to, again, um, discrimination based on skin color, right? Um, so it is, I believe, you know, the, the theory is very useful in education because it allows the students, first of all, to have an awareness of, you know, things are not equal. Um, we, unfortunately, things are still not equal. So it's not that we can just disregard that because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. No, no, no. There's a still, you know, inequalities that we need to address and we need to work against inequality, right? So, um, so yeah, that's what I believe critical race theory um, has an integral part in education. However, you might not even want to use uh, the term, but if you practice the premise, then you're doing the work, right? I mean, like, I don't know if a, a five-year-old will understand what critical race theory is or, or needs to know like those terms, but if you explain in actions, like the concepts behind, then you get the point across. The same with queer theory, right? Like this, no, I mean, another thing about our um, uh, consequences of colonialism is to um, have this notion that the norm is heterosexuality uh, and that heteropatriarchal models are the norm and that there's only one way of being sexual. There's only one way of being, uh, of understanding gender and of understanding who we who we are as sexual beings and and you know that there's a right and wrong right um and again those things are consequences of colonialism or colonial thinking right so again like queer theory opens up these otherwise these challenging the norms these challenging the normatives and into really exploring what else is there like and the complexities of of even like what does it mean that, for instance, and in, in, in my case, that I consider myself a woman, what does that really even mean? The way that I, that, that I think of myself as a woman is the same as perhaps Lawrence? Maybe not. And that is okay. And there is a sense of, um, there is a critique that needs to happen in how that it starts with ourselves and how we perform gender. So the performativity of gender is something that is crucial to queer theory, right? And anyways, I can go on and on and on, but basically <laughs> that's what I can say at this point. No, and see, I'm, I'm glad that we, we got some breakdown because I mean, it, it gets, I mean, as a teacher uh, and reading the news, a lot of parents are just upset 
I don't want my child learning about this critical race theory and yada, yada, yada. Okay, well, I'm still going to teach that everything is not equal. I'm still going to teach that there are inequalities in education, how uh, me working at a lower economic school, you are not going to have the same um, avenues as someone who goes to a more uh, higher economic status. Also, that will deal with race. That will deal with all of this. I'm still going to teach that. Will I necessarily have to say critical race theory? No, but I'm still teaching you what the real world is. And this is what we're talking about. So I think a lot of people, when they just hear it, they automatically go into a defense. I've seen so many articles about that. So I'm just glad that you just kind of broke it down for all of us. Thank you so much. Yeah, and this is, this is so... I feel like I'm back in class and I'm like, just like, because it felt like this. It felt like we were having conversations and the the, um, resources and context, how you would contextualize all these ideas and these theories. And every time we talked about it, I felt like I left with a deeper understanding of all of it. And I felt like I was like, I don't know, I was like learning more about just humanity in a way versus like just learning sense but learning how they intertwine with each other um and so i'm, I'm just so thankful to have that first of all that you were there <laughs> my first year to have learned from you um and that i still have this connection to you and i will always consider you a mentor um and i'm just so uh, grateful that we could have you on and if anyone wanted to kind of find out more because you've done so much amazing research how would they be able to find work you have done and that's out there published Thank you, Lauren, for saying that. And I feel the same. I, it's for me an honor to be considered your mentor. And um, and it was an honor to have you in class. It really was. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm getting emotional, which is good because getting emotional is good too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have a, an academia.edu page where I have a bunch of texts that I have published. and But basic information about me can be found can be found in my UNM faculty uh, profile page. And I, I do have a, a personal website that I am building that is www.anaminuti.com and I'm in social media as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll make sure to like have all that below as well um, and for the for the videos. And when we share the video, we'll have your your bio and all that information so they can find you. Um, so it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much again for being with us today. And um, you guys make sure to go check out Dr. Minuti and all the amazing things she's doing. And we'll see you all next week on Relative Pitch. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye.